Welcome to the dough, where Cash is queen and we hardly know her, but we're still here figuring her out together. Because y'all, season two is here, okay? Hosted every week by me, X Maya. Remember, I'm going to be talking to all types of people about their relationship to money. Reality stars, entrepreneurs, financial experts, and even some of my own friends. Basically, anyone who will get real with me about their dollars. How they make money, how they spend it, and how they save it. Because I'm trying to retire early, people. Season 2 of The Dough is out on March 21st, wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada. Welcome to the bubble. This is Andy Slavitt, and it's Friday, August 26th. Polio, on top of monkeypox, on top of COVID-19. No, I'm going to answer your question. We are not living in biblical times. We're really not. There's lots of wonderful things that are happening in the world. But we do have some plagues upon us. Now, even though we're not living in biblical times, if I were Satan, okay, this is a thought experiment for you, and I were going to inflict polio in developed countries, I might do it just after I completely exhausted the public with a prior pandemic. And a public that is less prepared and less willing to do common sense basic things for a preventable condition like polio are the perfect conditions to inflict polio upon people. In other words, unlike COVID-19, we have a 99% effective vaccine, but a very, very tired public. And as those of you who've been following the news know, we have now seen what was a disease that had been eradicated in this country for 30 years show up again in the U.S. It's a case in Rockland County of a man who'd been infected and paralyzed by poliovirus. So, Today, we're going to look at what this circulation of the virus means for our country, what it means for you, with the two very, very best people you could ever possibly hope to talk to about this topic. First is the New York State Health Commissioner, Dr. Mary Bassett. Welcome, Mary. Thanks very much for having me, Andy. And Mary has given me permission to refer to her as Mary, but under other circumstances, not on the show, I would be referring to her as Madam Commissioner. It's wonderful for you to be here in the midst of dealing with this attack. And we have Dr. Bonnie Maldonado, who is a professor of pediatrics at Stanford, and she chairs the American Academy of Pediatrics on Infectious Diseases. Who better to have joining Mary than Bonnie? Welcome, Bonnie. 
Well, thank you, Andy, uh, for inviting me. And it's lovely to be here with you and Mary. So, Mary, tell us what's going on. We know about this case of polio in Rockland County. Give us a, a little bit of summary of the news. Is this the only case? And what does this tell you about what we think is happening here in the U.S. with polio? Sure. And actually, as it happens, I, I picked up the phone and talked with Bonnie about our situation in, in New York State as it was unfolding. So on July 21st, we reported that a young adult, unvaccinated young adult, had uh, been diagnosed with a paralytic uh, disease with polio. And at that time, we started um, looking at how we could get insight into whether or not um, there was circulating virus. This individual didn't have a travel history that made us think that they had acquired polio anywhere but locally. And so we started looking at wastewater, which is a polite word for sewage, um, because people shed uh, the virus when they get infected, uh, whether or not they develop symptoms into wastewater. So we started testing the wastewater and we found uh, positive uh, samples for a genetically linked virus in wastewater in Rockland County, uh, later in Orange County. Uh, we saw it beginning in May uh, up through, we've had some positive samples in August. Uh, so uh, this was a sign that we had a circulating virus that could cause polio, uh, not just one unlucky individual. Is there any way to estimate, based on your experience, how much and how widely we you think polio might be circulating? Well, we've said that for, you know, the, we use the phrase tip of the iceberg, which is accurate. Um, the um, proportion of people who get infected who develop paralytic disease is less than 1%. So it stands to reason that we could have hundreds of individuals, uh, but we, we don't have that. We have not identified those individuals. What we know is that we have shedding into wastewater over months preceding the diagnosis of this individual and also found afterwards uh, in a geographically dispersed area. So we don't know the numbers, uh, but we they, they could be hundreds. They, they, they could be higher than that. Bonnie, could you give us a bit of polio virus 101? How does it spread? When does it spread? What are the symptoms? How often is it asymptomatic? How contagious is it? Yeah, so polio is an intestinal virus. It's uh, in the family called enteroviruses. So there are over a hundred different types of enteroviruses and polioviruses are three of them, one, type one, two, and three. And these are unique in that they only occur naturally in humans. And so theoretically, it's possible to eradicate them because if you vaccinated all the children in the world, you could prevent shedding and transmission of this virus over time. And we were very close to eradicating the wild type virus. So this is the naturally occurring virus. Last year, there were only six cases of this virus in the world. This So far, there have been about just under two dozen cases in the world. Um, so in theory, this is a, a virus that uh, passes, you get infected, it passes through your intestinal tract, you excrete it in, a little bit in the respiratory tract, but mostly in the intestinal tract through feces. And that's why it's spread mostly through places where there is bad hygiene and bad sanitation, or even in developed settings where people don't wash their hands. So detecting it in sewage in uh, a lesser resource country would mean that people could get it by drinking that water. 
Uh, but in the U.S. and other developed settings, it means that people are shedding it into good sanitation, but they could be transmitting it by hand to mouth or touching uh, each other uh, without washing their hands um, in communities and households. So there are a little bit different mechanisms of transmission depending on where you live. But if you are vaccinated, you are protected against disease. So the dilemma here is that if people just are vaccinated, there's nothing to be worried about. It's really the unvaccinated in the community who can develop paralysis. I want to get to the conversation about vaccines, and which is going to get into the conversation. It's going to naturally, I'm sure, get into a conversation about why people aren't vaccinated and about misinformation, and about all those things. But at first, I want to just make sure we're grounded um, completely enough in, in understanding. When I listen to you, Bonnie, talk about how it spreads, what I picture, and tell me if I've got this wrong, are little kids in the playground, gone to the washroom perhaps, maybe didn't wash their hands. We're talking about unvaccinated now, because if you're vaccinated, as you said, there's nothing to worry about. I'm trying to get an understanding of how it spreads and how contagious it is, how likely it is to get. And then I believe you said, Mary, that in many cases, it's asymptomatic. In fewer cases, but still uh, but still a number, there may be my, some mild flu-like type symptoms. And at about one in a hundred, it can cause paralysis. Did I get all that right? Yeah, I've been doing studies for on polio for over 25 years now. Uh, looking at transmission, exactly looking at transmission of the virus, primarily among indigenous populations. In fact, we're doing some now to try to track um, how the virus moves from one person to another, but likely it's just dirty hands or dirty water. That's, that, that's the most likely scenario. So something has to go to the mouth to get to the digestive tract. And that's happened quickly. And then if someone, you know, many parents, you know, when they see their kids sick, they think the worst. Oh, this could be this. This could be that. What are the things to watch for that could say, hey, this is something that's worth checking out? It's a kind of symptom that could lead to a more severe outcome like paralysis. Is there anything in that spectrum? Yeah. So polio tends to affect people in the lower limbs, usually one limb and not both, but it can be both. It can mm. also affect the whole body, but it's mostly lower limbs. So when you go into in the old days when we really weren't tracking polio outside of developed countries. Um, you would do lameness surveys. So people would go into different mm -hmm. countries and check to see who was lame. And that was a way to detect whether how, how prevalent polio was. So this mm -hmm. is what you see at the end point. At the beginning, what you see in kids, you think the child is lethargic and maybe they're not moving well. And then if you get an, a good neurologic exam, what you find is that they have um, no reflexes. They're really not moving their legs mm. or they may be weak reflexes. So it may not be a complete paralysis with a deep, deep loss of tendon reflexes, but, Got it. Um, and that's, and they can, it can progress. Generally doesn't progress a lot, but it can progress. And, um, in about a third of people who actually wind up with paralytic disease, uh, they wind up doing fine and getting better. About a third have residual disease and another third will have permanent paralysis and whatever they presented with. But there's also a post-polio syndrome that happens 20 or 30 years later, and it seems to be a some kind of inflammatory response where yes. many, many years later, people can actually re-experience um, the, the same paralytic phenomena that they had. We're hearing about this. 
I, th- I yes. think that the sort of take home on this though is that don't uh, this looking after your kid in terms of polio uh, by looking for symptoms is not the way to go. Right. We want to see kids protected from getting these symptoms uh, because once a child has uh, polio, um, you know you're you're now rolling the dice. All right, let's take a quick break and then let's come back and talk about what could happen if we don't improve polio vaccinations pretty quickly. What's some of the things we could wake up to in six months or a year from now? There. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. And of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out March 27th from Lemonada Media. Last Day is a show about the moments that change us. I just don't think I will ever get used to this. I'm Stephanie Whittles-Wax, and I have had one of these moments. We all have. So let's unpack the chaos that is our human existence together. I don't believe things happen for a reason. I don't believe the universe has a plan. Each week, I sit down with a new guest to explore happy, sad stories of transformation. It's leaning far, far into the pain. That's what it is. Listen to Last Day wherever you get your podcasts. In your nightmare, Mary, if we close our eyes to this, if we don't improve vaccination rates, if people don't pay attention, what's the situation six months from now or a year from now could we wake up and face? Could we see large numbers of cases? Could we see widespread? Could we see this in every community in the country? I don't want to ask you to scare us, but I do want you to paint the nightmare scenario of what happens if we don't start to take some of the measures, countermeasures we're going to talk about. Let me just say that I think she should scare us. <laughs> this is scary. Well, I, I, All uh, right. I, yeah, no, and this is, uh, I, I tend to be a pretty calm person, and, and I've been losing sleep over this scenario because we have not had community circulation of a polio virus that can cause paralysis in, in ages. The last case in New York State was in 1990, and the last case in the U.S. was an introduced case. These were introduced cases where people went somewhere and um, either because they were under vaccinated or, um, you know, they were high rates of circulating virus. But this is here. We know that we have a circulating virus here. And so that means potentially anyone who is unvaccinated or under vaccinated is at risk. And it's a risk that we do not need to take. Uh, you know, the idea that we would turn to pediatricians to keep an eye on sick children as a way of keeping track of polio in our community, I think, is pretty misguided. I mean, I, I, I have complete trust in the diagnostic abilities of pediatricians, but we have a passive way of keeping track of polio virus. That's the wastewater surveillance that I've mentioned to you. And here we have effectively a human tragedy that's proof. 
How many cases could this turn into? Let me tell you what's happening in other countries where they are undervaccinated and they're seeing this exact type of virus. We've seen outbreaks of dozens of cases. Uh, the war overall globally, we have over 140 laboratories around the world tracking wastewater to look for polio. We don't do it in the U.S. because we are highly vaccinated and we don't worry about transmission until now. But around the world, we're seeing uh, clusters. Uh, overall, last year, we had almost 700 cases of paralytic disease, mm. just like this, primarily in under highly under-vaccinated countries. And Syrian refugees, right? There was quite a big yeah. outbreak, uh, over 70 cool. cases. So there can be dozens and dozens. Um, you know, I don't think there'll be thousands, which because we do have reasonable vaccine coverage. Uh, but, you know, people should understand that paralysis can be permanent. And, and one case is reason to respond as an outbreak. So do you think we could see, if we don't respond, dozens of cases? Bonnie, when you look at that, is that an image when you, you look out a couple of years from now and you think about the low levels of vaccination in certain communities? Is that your fear as well? Well, I don't have to look forward. I can look back to see what happened a few years ago when we had a tremendous measles outbreak with hundreds of cases. And this was all in unvaccinated communities. We almost lost our measles elimination status because that outbreak lasted almost a year. Um, and that was only mitigated because of vaccination. And so we could see hundreds of cases in the U.S. and they would be clustered in unvaccinated populations and unfortunately, a lot of those could be very vulnerable and very hard to find and, and to mitigate. So it puts everybody at risk. And we're facing a disease here that was literally eliminated from the Western Hemisphere in 1994. So we are allowing a disease to reemerge in a highly resourced country. In some ways, I can't think of anything crueler than a disease which takes someone who is entering the most energetic time of their lives with so much to look forward to and renders them unable to play, to to walk in many cases, and is a lifelong af affliction. Most of the people alive today in the U.S. don't remember this. Maybe they've seen footage of FDR and maybe they've seen footage of kids but they don't have it seared in their memories. This just feels like an especially cruel manifestation of a virus. And even if we're talking about dozens and dozens instead of hundreds and hundreds or thousands and thousands, that feels like an incredibly cruel disease. It's absolutely a, a travesty to see this happen. And I think Mary Mary's point about vaccination is is important. Because this is a really a canary in a coal mine, tip of the iceberg, whatever metaphor you want to use, we have protected this country from 30,000 plus deaths a year in children alone, not, not to mention adults who can be vaccinated against other diseases. Um, and that is based on what these viruses and bacteria that we have vaccines for protected us from um, over the last several decades. And if we go backwards, and we are going backwards, there is evidence now that we are seeing lower rates of vaccination around the country during after the COVID pandemic. We don't know why. We can talk about that in a bit. But we are seeing lower rates, not dangerously low, but they are starting to slip. And that's worrisome because we can prevent deaths. We can prevent 
hospitalizations, and as you said, devastating impacts on young lives and adult lives too, um, with simple and safe, extremely safe measures. And choosing not to do so, I think, is very cruel. So let's talk about vaccines here. Very seldom do we get presented with a problem that we have a very, very good answer for. Most of the time, the world's too complex. We need to deal with global climate change. We need to deal with refugees. We need to deal with very complex issues that unfortunately don't have a very simple off-the-shelf silver bullet. Do we have a silver bullet here, Mary? <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, I, I just I want to underscore what Bonnie's just said, that, that the occurrence of circulating poliovirus is, is really... Uh, a, a shocking observation, and it is a sign of going backwards. And we have a safe and effective vaccine. We've had it for decades. We've been immunizing people since the 1950s. It's based on, base, frankly, old-fashioned vaccine technology. Uh, and this doesn't have to happen. Uh, uh, we We can really turn this around. This is very different than uh, the new presentation of a, of a known virus, which happened with right. monkeypox or a novel virus. This is something, this is an ancient scourge that uh, 20th century public health and science was able to put push to the brink of, of eradication. And that's still within reach. But we have a whole set of complex issues that have to do with how people feel about vaccines. That is the barrier to this. All right. Well, let's get into talking about those barriers and how to overcome them, because it really is the heart of the matter right after break. Hey, listeners, if you haven't heard, you can now show your support for In the Bubble and meet other cool In the Bubble listeners with your very own In the Bubble t-shirt, mug, and baseball cap. Get all three, head to our merch store at lemonademedia.com slash shop to pick up yours today. Hey, Lemonada listeners, we want to hear from you. You know we love our sponsors for a ton of reasons, but one of the main ones is that they help us keep the lights on. And there's a really easy way that you can help us draw new advertisers and hear ads for things you're most interested in. Filling out our quick anonymous survey at lemonadamedia.com survey. By just answering a few questions, you can help us find new brands to connect with and also share feedback about show content you'd like to see across the network. And to sweeten the deal, once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. I promise the survey is short and sweet and will help us play ads you don't want to skip and also keep bringing you content you love. Just go to lemonadamedia.com survey. You know, we do know that with COVID-19, there were a number of people who said, and I think quite a reasonable question to ask, hey, this is new. How do we know it's safe? I've always believed that that's a reasonable question to ask and it deserves a straight and fair answer. And what they were saying is, hey, this ain't the polio vaccine, which we've been giving people forever. Okay, now this is the polio vaccine. So maybe you start with you, Bonnie. 
why do we think people are not getting vaccinated and not getting their kids vaccinated? Well, as you mentioned, I I just actually rotated off being chair of the Committee on Infectious Diseases for the American Academy of Pediatrics. But while I worked with them for 12 years, I was really um, fortunate to be able to work with pediatric leadership around the country and actually around the world around these issues of vaccine hesitancy. There's just so many different reasons. But let me just give you a very simple-minded, for me, I mean, the way I think of it simply, scenario And this is when um, a a new family, as you said, never seen any of these diseases because we've been successful. They walk in the door, they have their brand new baby, this perfect little bean, and they come in to see their pediatrician and they see this, you know, all these shots that the baby needs to get. Mm -hmm. And yet they see no disease. They say, well, why should I give these shots to my baby? There's no polio. There's no measles. Um, there's very little pneumococcal disease. There's all of these things that we've never seen. So in many ways, uh, public health people, uh, officials like Mary really uh, are victims of their own success. success. I think, yeah. I think it's hard to prove a negative. So the fact that something's not there is really hard to impress on families. Now, talking to pediatricians around the country, and you know, the American Academy represents 67,000 pediatricians. So they're dealing with this on the front lines every day. And what most of them have done, in my view, is really sit down with families and explain, this is why you need this. Most of us who are old enough saw these diseases every single week in our practice, in our hospitals, children dying or being uh, you know, maimed for a life or having other mm-hmm. complications. Mm-hmm. Honestly, if you haven't seen it, it's you can't explain it to people, but every single night that I was on call in the 80s and 90s, I was thinking, okay, when is that kid with meningitis going to walk in the door? When is that next kid going to die? We had protocols for all this stuff. We had children die every single week here at this hospital um, and all around the world from these diseases, and they're not gone. They're just, we're just protected. So you wouldn't stop your insulin or your antihypertensives or your statin because you're better, you keep taking them. And I, this is the same thing at a population level. We need to continue these vaccines because those viruses and bacteria are still out there. So I'm going to ask this question cautiously because I'm really reluctant to use the term anti-vax. There are communities that are under-vaccinated. Those are ones that are vulnerable here. Then there are people, organizations, that are fighting the, in, in legislatures, I think in dozens of states right now, there's proposed legislation to make childhood vaccination requirements at schools illegal, to make vaccinations in certain locations illegal. So there's a big effort here. And I'm not a both sides or so I'm not, I'm not trying to give equal time to their point of view. But I, I do want you to help us address the skeptics and the critics and the deniers a bit, because Let's say a young parent is at a school and they run into another parent who's loaded up with some of these messages and is not getting their child vaccinated. Presumably, we want to try to start with a level of understanding, i.e. what is going on in this parent's head. They're not a dumb person. They love their kids, all those things. Help us understand a little bit better so maybe the conversation can be had or maybe it helps as people think about how to have this conversation Bonnie, maybe I'd ask you to start on that. Well, you know, our um, we have a pediatrician in the California State Legislature, and he passed also the non-medical exemption 
um, law and he gets regular, routinely gets death threats. So yeah, it, it's frightening. And, and I do think what you said, Andy, I don't know what you think, Mary. Mm-hmm. I think some of these people truly have decided they're going to believe it. I don't know if they in their hearts believe it, but they have decided that they're going to believe this stuff. Yeah, and I think that it part of it is a, a source of identity. Uh, we talked about loss of social solidarity, but people, you know, get into these groups and get, um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of affirmation and reinforcement and a sense of worth. Yeah, you're. I think you're right. I think once yeah. once you once you're there, and you meet other people who are there, it's so mm-hmm. self reinforcing. Mary, you've written about how, in addition to I think there's very astute point that Bonnie makes that you're asking me to protect my child against something that I can't see and hasn't been here for years, that the messenger, when the messenger is the government, people repel. When the government, when the message is someone, an authority, people are repelled. Can you talk a little bit about that and how to get around that? Well, I think that there's a growing distrust of government. We we are all very aware of that. And uh, it uh, extends to a, a growing distrust of public health authorities, uh, which is something that we have to work really hard to How do you restore. address that? Well, I think it's by being trustworthy. And I think <laughs> having the opportunity to have conversations like this uh, and, and say that people who have questions... Uh, should discuss them. And the people I would like to see people talking with about their questions about vaccines is their pediatrician or their family doctor. Uh, I would plead with them not to go to the internet, but to take your question to the person who your child, who's going to take responsibility for your child's health uh, over the coming years. That's, that's the place to have those conversations. But we all know that communities that are under vaccinated often are targeted by misinformation. In New York City, uh, during the measles outbreak that um, that Bonnie mentioned, uh, there was clear targeting of under-vaccinated zip codes with misinformation. So it's, it's a combination of parents' legitimate uh, concern about protecting their tiny little, their tiny perfect newborn. Uh, we recommend that people start vaccinating their kids at two months for polio. That's pretty young. Uh, but it, it's also just the incredible amount of misinformation that's out there. Let's 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 turn to the pediatricians and the family doctors and um, and, and ask your health department as well. Yeah, you know, I think Mary um, is absolutely correct that uh, here in Stanford, California, our county health officials we work hand in hand with them. It really has to be a partnership. It really needs to be. Done. I think mostly at the local level. Clearly, the federal level is important to support, but the local um, and state public health officials need to be supported by trusted voices in the community. It's critical to have that combination. People trust people that they know. And the problem with social media is you've got a bot there that you think is a person and you think that you know them and they're just feeding you a lot of bad information. So knowing a real person is important. I think that mm. as we talked about at the local level, really trying to engage with individuals. And what we've found in general, not only at the US level, but actually globally now, is the majority of people are can are, are feeling like they can be convinced. They just need to hear more. They need to be dealt with at the local level. They need to understand what they need to be heard. But there is a core group of people who really have 
a variety of motivations. Some of them are, you know, you keep my body, you know, my choice kind of thing, which interestingly doesn't happen when you're pregnant, but mm-hmm. it can happen mm-hmm. for this. Um, and then other political motivations that I can't even begin to imagine. Well, and, and, and religious as well, right? I mean, there's... We cite the religious documents that say you can be vaccinated. So I think people can, they can jump over these. But the point here is that there are other motivations that go behind some of these groups. And um, they started to team up even more during the pandemic. And this is really a political core of people who are using this and a variety of other issues. I really don't know what to do about those groups, but they, but I think one of the things that we try to do, at least is in the pediatric community, is really try to focus on the overall community, focus yeah. on the people that you can convince, work with those individuals. Um, you know, one other issue, for example, you can't, you know, when you talk about the public health um, and what's the public good, where does where do your rights end and somebody else's rights stop? We don't tell people you, it's optional for you to stop at a red light. It's optional for you to wear a, a seatbelt. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things. Pay and, taxes. Exactly. And so, and and actually, we've gone there, right? There are people who do think. Um, that there are certain limits to what the public sure. health can do. But there is precedent, and I would urge us to continue to push on legislation. That legislation right. that you mentioned and the firing of public health officials who back vaccination is really bone-chilling. It's insidious. We are at very high risk for these people. So yeah. I don't have an answer, but I think we need to congratulate people like Mary who do this work every day. Well, I'm and in also- New York State, right? Where <laughs> New York State got rid of religious exemptions uh, some yeah. time ago. So we have so a pretty we. robust commitment. Uh, yeah. There are medical reasons that, that some people uh, may not be able to receive vaccines and those are should be documented and they're and, and they're yep. reasonable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, those are the individuals that all of us are seeking to protect when we get vaccinated, the people who are unable to be vaccinated. Uh, but I, I agree that I mean, we talk some about, uh, you know, the notion of, of social solidarity and the ways in which this has ceased to be a compelling argument for many people in this country. And that's a source of great it's, concern it's to sad. me. It's sad. Yeah. It's just, and where does it stop? I mean, there's so few problems we're capable of addressing on our own, truly, without the help of others. And, and we can't forget that. You know, I, I've had um, governors share with me letters that they've received from, again, I don't want to say anti-vaccine, but people who are really trying to get rid of all these protections and, and restrictions. And the governor asked me his opinion of a letter he sent me recently. And I said, well, it's 40 lines long and there's 11 lies in it that I found and it's only 40 lines long and I can't tell whether or not the person who wrote it believed what they were writing or didn't. I have no way of knowing, but I do know that if I didn't know they were lies, it, it could scare me yeah. because there's, they were really absurd statements. I think what you point out, Bonnie, to wrap this up and gives us some hope that Mary's work will go rewarded, which is there are still a large number of people, a far larger number of unvaccinated people that probably aren't doing it for reasons like, I haven't seen polio in this country, as you said, so why would I do it? Or that are saying, I don't really want to stick a needle into my baby if I can avoid it. And I think all 
you need to tell people who are in that category it's it's here and we have an answer that has worked for decades at 99% and it is not the live virus because that's a rumor that goes around that people get concerned about and we will never get everybody in this country we will never get everybody I, so I want to close giving each of you a chance to have the last word Bonnie yeah, thank you for uh, for having us on. I think this is a really important time to highlight the successes that public health and science have brought together to improve the lives of people in the U.S. and around the world. Today, 30,000 children a year don't die from diseases in the U.S., and 3 million children a year don't die around the world from diseases that are still lurking out there in soil in other places and animals. And we can keep those diseases away from our children. We can keep them healthy um, and keep them alive and thriving. But we need to really um, invest in our public health infrastructure. We need to learn how to build better communication skills from the federal level to the state and local community levels. Uh, and make these public-private partnerships available so that everyone can be protected and that everyone can realize um, that uh, these are scientifically-based, uh, proven, uh, effective interventions, and that we should believe in science as well while we're doing it, because um, we just want to see that next generation thrive. We don't want to go backwards like it looks like we are now, but I think we have hope that we can continue to move forward. Mary? Well, thanks very much, Andy. I think conversations like this are part of what we need to uh, to confront the problem that we're facing in New York, which is that we have a circulating polio virus uh, identified definitively in several counties, which can cause paralysis. And the answer to this is for people who are unvaccinated to get vaccinated. And we, it also means that people are behind not getting vaccinated, meaning they haven't vaccinated their kids yet to get vaccinated. And I know that every parent, every caregiver loves their children and they want to see them protected. So I, I'm, I'm going to rely on the facts and the fact that everyone really cares about preventing uh, bad things from happening to their kids. And, and that's how we're going to get vaccination coverage up in New York State. Well, bless you and thank you for your great work and being out front of this. And we wish you all the luck and Godspeed. Thank you for all your great work and your continued great work. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, let me tell you what is coming up as we head towards the end of summer. We've got a few things relative to kids heading back to school. Monday's show is about school ventilation. Rich Corsi, who is a show favorite, and Jim Rosenthal, they have created a way to take any room and ventilate it. School, classroom, anywhere else. They've been doing a lot of work with schools. I know that's on people's minds, but it's not just for parents. It's also for people who want to have good indoor air ventilation because they don't want to get COVID or inhale smoke from fires. So it's a cool episode. Wednesday, Rochelle Walensky, the director of the CDC, is going to be on where she's going to open up for the first time in a real way about what's going on with the CDC, what led her to take the position she did, which was to say that the CDC is broken, a very unusual 
thing for a director of anything to say. That will be interesting. Uh, the following week, we've got Sanjay Gupta coming on, uh, who's a good friend. And we also have a conversation around learning loss as kids are back to school. Pretty profoundly interesting research around what's going on with kids and how to help make up that time. And we'll have lots of good shows around that. So thank you for tuning in. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to In the Bubble. We're a production of Lemonada Media. Catherine Barnes, Jackie Harris, and Cal Sheely produce our show, and they're great. Our mix is by Noah Smith and James Barber, and they're great too. Steve Nelson is the Vice President of Weekly Content, and he's okay too. And of course, the ultimate bosses, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and Stephanie Whittleswax, the executive produced the show, and we love them dearly. Our theme was composed by Dan Malad and Oliver Hill with additional music by Ivan Kuryev. You can find out more about our show on social media at Lemonada Media, where you can also get a transcript of the show, and you can find me at Acelavit on Twitter. If you like what you heard today, why don't you tell your friends to listen as well and get them to write a review. Thanks so much. Talk to you next time. Hey, listeners, I'm here today to tell you about Lemonada Media's newest limited podcast series called Declined. This series takes you through the journey of two exceptional women from incarceration to freedom, ultimately leading to the creation of the Returning Artists Guild, an organization that uplifts the artwork of currently and formerly incarcerated artists across the country. Call Declined is out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey friends, it's Megan Trainer And her big bro, Ryan Trainer And her husband, Daryl Sabara. Each week on our podcast, Working On It, we share behind-the-scenes stories and bring you into our hilarious and heartfelt conversations, and sometimes with amazing guests. We tackle everything from navigating Hollywood to mental health to Megan becoming a mother, Daryl becoming a father, and so much more. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of our lives and leave no detail behind. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. Listen to new episodes out every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts.